Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. about the money but then about you know my purpose i'm a christian and being a christian you tithe tithing the practice of donating 10 percent of one's income to the church is commonplace in many faiths but he was faithful but creflo dollar has made it a central part of his prosperity message he recalls stressing its importance when longtime friend holyfield was searching for answers after losing the heavyweight title to riddick bowe we were just going over a checklist, you know, your prayer time and time that you're spending in the Word, what's not working. And, and it's like the light bulb came on. He thought, wow, I'm doing everything except tithing. Since Holyfield's revelation that day, he's been Craflo Dollar's undisputed tithing champion. How much do you tithe? I tithe 10%. Yes, Michael opens up and he's a gusher here at All Four. Two ninety nine a minute on the one eight ninety nine. Oh, Rhonda line. Call now and hear every one of Michael's confessions. Ate a whole bacon sandwich once. Ah, Michael, those were the good old days. You should have just stuck to the food thing. Once again, if you're not enjoying Dead Reckoning, Rick Springfield offers some more viewing advice. Take off your pants. USA up all night continues. 
hope casting directors all over Hollywood were watching that. I mean, no one can be bludgeoned to death by a hammer like Cliff Robertson. 1993 was the year that USA Up All Night brought the eighth night of programming to USA Network. And it all started with a little seller named Nisha Uz. Sir? Yes. Okay, she said that she was never upset that you were a little bit ashamed of she. Okay? Because you know what she's talking about, don't you? Yeah. Okay. She does not hold that against you, and she's not upset, baby, all right? Yeah. Okay? Because she is in heaven. You have no need for worry. Bye-bye, baby. Bye. Bye-bye. I need a drink. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I seriously think I can speak for everyone, not only in this room, but the production studio across the hall and people who are lining the halls listening. And everybody, I think you blew everybody away. Yeah, I mean, come on. Absolutely. I can't explain this. If you're a skeptic, I want you to convince yourself for free. Listen to Cleo. It's time to try your free reading right now. What up, what up? This is Marlon, a.k.a. Sherlock Homeboy, back like I never left fast. That's a statue being nosy, minding my business. What up, Sherlock homies, Sherlock Nation? Are you not entertained? If you like this episode in any ways, please donate $2 or leave a five-star rating, which is like donating $100. Welcome to Takati, the cult of the individual. How you doing? How your mama doing? Today, we're just chilling, being nosy, minding my business. So let's relax a little bit. Let's take a step back. No, let's get started. I'm just taking it easy, man. It's like one of them days, but not a bad day. I guess if it's not a bad day, it's officially a good day. Yeah, if it's not a bad day, it's definitely a good day. So, well, just another blessed good day. How you guys doing, man? I'm trying to stop smoking cigars and shit, man. I think I'm going to move on to the vape, man. Slow progress. I'm walking that way. Like Run DMC and uh, Aerosmith. I'm walking that way, y'all. So we're going to check out the secrets of Opus D. Sec. Opus? I don't know how to uh, pronounce this. Oh, the secret of... Let me guess. Opus Dissect. Let's go, man. So I'm going to leave a review. Let me see. I don't think... I don't think this podcast has one review yet. Let me look. Let me look. How many episodes I did? I'm 64 episodes in. And that's, I consider 52 episodes a year. So I'm over a year into this podcast on my second season. And I don't have one written review so with this podcast, uh, I have 14 podcasts, but I'm going to condense again into about like seven podcasts. Uh, don't take for granted that you can't, you just can't support this shit and stay around. This shit will collapse into one of my other podcasts without uh, a structure or uh, a base of uh, participants or... Sherlock Homies. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
So yeah, bad sign for the future. Even though I like this podcast, bad sign for this podcast. Not one written review in over a year. Especially when I got to get rid of seven podcasts. The Secrets of the Opius D Sick. Let's see what they're talking about. Opus Day is among the Opus Day most powerful organizations within the Catholic Church. Extremely well connected in the Vatican, endorsed by former popes and feared by former members. Obey or you're done. I'd call it an authoritarian organization within the Catholic Church, even more authoritarian than the Church itself. The head of Opus Dei in Germany rarely gives interviews, but he made an exception for this report. He emphasized the group's Christian values. The primary importance of Opus Dei lies in the wonderful message of how to live every day with love and mercy as a Christian. Opus Dei founder Jose Maria Escrivá was revered as a saint during his lifetime. He aligned himself with powerful people, especially in Spain. The group's German branch also seeks close contact to politicians and church leaders such as Cardinal Rainer Maria Volki, Cologne's controversial archbishop. Traditionally media shy, Opus Dei was forced into the spotlight by Dan Brown's bestseller, The Da Vinci Code, and a subsequent film. The group was portrayed as bloodthirsty and ruthless. But where is the line between myth and reality? Is Opus Dei a Catholic cult that endangers members and a free society? Or is the personal prelature nothing more than another pious institution fighting to keep an ever-decreasing number of believers in the fold? Pamplona, the capital of the northern Spanish region of Navarra. This is where Opus Dei began its ascension. The Catholic Church played a leading role in the lives of many in this rural region. The ground here was fertile for a new devout group like Opus Dei. In 1928, a young priest, Jose Maria Escrivá, is struck by what he calls divine inspiration. He founds Opus Dei, in English, work of God. His mission, Christianize the world. Things move slowly at first. But the Spanish Civil War marks a turning point. Opus Dei and Navarra politicians support General Francisco Franco. After his victory, the general shows his appreciation. As a token of gratitude, Navarre was permitted to maintain its own tax system. Opus Dei benefited financially by siding with Franco, another reason why the group settled here. When Escriba was asked why he'd chosen Navarre, he said it was God's plan, as if God had pointed his finger here. The deal with the fascist leader Francisco Franco pays off, for God's elites, as they call themselves. 
Members of the group hold key economic and political positions. They use their powerful roles to open Spain up to tourism and liberalize the economy. In the early 1960s, a finance minister associated with Opus Dei becomes head of the Bank of Spain. Government loans flow to companies tied to the group. Spain's government and Opus Dei remain intertwined even now. Education, justice, and presumably banking are still under its influence. How? We turn to Ana Azanza, a philosophy lecturer and former long-time Opus Dei member. Opus Dei has retained so much power because there was never a true break from the country's past, which would have been critical for our social progression. It's likely put on a fresh coat of paint after Franco's death, but Spain's core foundation and structures remained intact. No one was held accountable. Young people today know next to nothing about the dictatorship. The subject is taboo, and a lot of it is covered up. No one is brave enough to self-reflect and analyze it. It will likely go on like this for the next century. Ana Azanza has insight into the inner workings of Opus Day. She was part of the group for 19 years, one of about 90,000 members globally. Members in North and South America make up about a third of that total. There are roughly 10,000 members in Africa, Asia, Australia and Oceania combined. Spain is Opus Dei's strongest base with about 35,000 members. Another 4,000 are in Italy and in Germany about 600 clergy and laypersons. In 1945, Opus Dei starts expanding from Spain to Portugal and Italy then to Germany, France, and England. It later establishes centers in North and South America. Today, there are members in 90 countries, including Africa and Eastern Europe. Opus Dei is structured around strict hierarchies. Only men are allowed to join at first, though women are soon allowed too. Prelate Fernando Ocares now heads the group. About 2% of its members are priests. About 10% are so-called numeraries, who live in Opus Dei centers, separated by gender and committed to celibacy. They are supported by assistant numeraries, women who cook and clean in the facilities. The largest group are the supernumeraries, who follow the values of Opus Dei, but are allowed to marry and lead private lives. So the uh, bad guys said, we got to look at these numeraries. Yeah, the numeraries, they saying they can't. And they, that's like going against like a natural thing. So uh, we're going to investigate them numer numeraries. $100 tap dance special sponsored episode with a $100 donation. My address, PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App is in the information box. Tell me your favorite podcast of mine. And your name and message will be read on air as the official sponsor of the episode. Can't talk and learn at the same time because I'm back here learning, man. More than just trying to tear something down, man. I'm trying to learn, man. I tear them down later, but I must learn. I'm learning back here. I'm learning. The German branch of Opus Dei is based in Cologne. It's long been supported by the Archdiocese of Cologne, previously by Cardinal Joachim Meisner, then 
by his successor, Cardinal Volki. Not everyone approves of this close relationship. This priest from the Archdiocese spoke to us on the condition of anonymity to avoid facing repercussions. Cologne is one of the richest dioceses in Germany and worldwide. That's why Cologne has become an attractive destination for ultra-conservative Catholic groups that emerged in the 20th century. Opus Dei, Legionnaires of Christ, the Neo-Catechumenal Way and others have found their way here. They've been welcomed by the bishops and are readily supported. This priest and other ministers have their reasons for not wanting to openly criticize Opus Dei. The clergy and Catholic milieu in Cologne are a special case. I've always been struck by how fearful the bishops are of an open conflict with Opus Dei. All I think is, what do you have to lose? It's not as if a bishop will be stripped of his title for criticizing Opus Dei, but the fear is real. What fuels this fear? Is it justified? After persistent requests, Christoph Bockkamp agreed to an interview. He's been the head of Opus Dei in Germany for more than 25 years. The regional vicar is pleased with the group's growing popularity. Bishops worldwide ask our prelate in Rome to open branches of Opus Dei everywhere. We can't keep up with the demand. In the last few decades, centers have sprung up all across Eastern Europe. In our case, membership is growing gradually. The primary importance of Opus Dei lies in the wonderful message of how to live, to spend every day in love and mercy as a Christian. Love and mercy. So why is there so much fear surrounding Opus Dei? Bockham doesn't understand either. We continue to probe. What does the group actually want? Internal writings mention the sanctification of daily life and Christianizing society. What does that look like in practice? Initially, sanctifying daily life and imbuing work with Christian values is a good concept. The notion that Christianity is not only limited to a religious service or a pious exercise in church, and instead is connected to society and life outside the church. I believe the intuition there is a good one. And there were others before Opus Dei. But eventually, more elitist notions, the pursuit of power, and certain ecclesiastical goals emerged. That's a clear thread throughout Opus Dei's history. And that's when Christianization of society and the sanctification of work and daily life take on a different meaning. Former Opus Dei members rarely recount Christian values. Many talk of bullying and insistence on obedience. We spoke with another former member who asked to remain anonymous. I wanted to be anonymous. 
I wanted to become a nurse. I moved out of my home, and during my training I tried out various things. And that's how I got to know Sonnenfeld, a vocational school here in Cologne. I initially had no idea it was related to the church. I realized that later. First the people befriend you, and slowly you're shown around. Look! The house has a chapel from the church. They watch your reaction, how you react, whether or not you show interest. And I thought it was great, a secular organization, and I found it totally fantastic. I was ecstatic. I started trying to convert everyone around me. Like other religious groups, Opus Dei focuses on recruiting young people who can attract more members. We were supposed to find more people who had the calling. We took a sewing course at the Adult Education Center. Not to learn to sew, but to find people we could invite to the center. That was the goal. Now I see through it all, but before, I thought it was great. I was enchanted. I would have given my life for them. Many new members feel a great deal of pressure to perform. Not delivering causes trouble. Das Opus selber lebt von der Kontrolle. Also the Opus Dei thrives on control, meaning pressuring people to follow all these rules and punishing them if they don't. When it comes to the faith, there's a certain pressure to excel. Opus Dei puts an emphasis both on economic success and the idea that faith is a kind of measurable performance. You always come up short. You always feel you're not doing enough. Also a means of applying pressure and domination. Dietmar Scharmitzer was an adolescent when he was recruited by Opus Dei. He stayed for nine years. He founded a platform for former members after leaving. One of the reasons behind the platform was that former members at first feel very guilty. You promised to do something, but didn't. Opus Dei approaches people without saying who it is and what it wants. It acts like a cult in some critical areas. The candidate is shown emotion and is courted. But when they actually join, the trap is sprung. The tone changes and everything is demanded of them. As the founder said, we strip him down to his shirt. Carmen Charo knows this from personal experience. She was only 12 when she was courted by the Opus Dei Youth Club. I was a shy girl, lonely and not a good student. My father always made me feel stupid. 
Everyone welcomed me warmly at the Opus Dei Youth Club. We played guitar. I felt accepted. And little by little, they got me to the point where I signed up. But I soon realized that I was not really suited for a life in Opus Dei. I felt imprisoned. But whenever I wanted to leave, they pressured me. You can't do that. God will never forgive you. You'll pay for it all your life. Things like that. I had little self-confidence, and I didn't know where to go. So I was easy prey for them, and they caught me again and again. We meet Antonio Escavias in Madrid. He was a priest in Opus Dei for 30 years. Then he quit, married, and started a new life. Everything is planned in Opus Day. The alarm clock rings just after six, which means get out of bed, kiss the floor and say Servium or I will serve God and Opus Day. Then it's time for a cold shower, warm water is prohibited, then praying the rosary and mass. After assisting with breakfast, pray again, then work. And in the evening, internal reflection, alone, and once a week, with the center's spiritual director. A life of rules and renunciations. Only approved books, no movies, no theater. It's really a parallel universe. You're not allowed to watch a soccer game or drive your own car, where and whenever you please. You have to give your car key to the director, and the money you earn is tightly controlled. You get a small amount for the basics, but even then, you have to track your expenses and account for every subway ticket at the end of the month. And if you want to buy a new pair of pants, you can't just go to a store. You have to ask the director first. The philosophy of Opus Dei founder José María Escrivá can be read in his book, Camino, in English, The Way. He wrote, Your duty is to be an instrument. Obey, as an instrument obeys in the hand of the artist, not stopping to consider the reasons for what it is doing. Obedience, duties, rules, bans. Former members recall how their frustrations gradually mounted. Can you obey? That's usually the first question, so that you can be molded and only do what the father and other leaders tell you. Ich habe noch zwei Erinnerungsstücke an meine Zeit im Opus Dei. Das Busband mit zwei bis drei Minuten. I have two mementos from my time in Opus Dei. A Silas, this metal chain with two to three millimeter thick spikes. You wear it with the spikes digging into your thigh and sit on it for two hours every day to subdue one's desires. And this is the penitential scourge. It's braided, but you feel the effects if you give it a swift lash. Weitere Bußübungen sind 
Other means of penance are the cold shower for the father in the morning and sleeping on the floor twice a week. Numeraries can't sleep on mattresses out of principle. There's also the practice of resting your head on a phone book instead of a pillow when you sleep. I sometimes have a stiff neck. I eventually resented it all. I thought this can't be. Suffering and sleepless nights. For the head of Opus Day in Germany, it comes back to pious tradition. Es gibt so eine Kirche traditionelle Askese, die Mutter Teresa praktiziert hat, die Papst Johannes Paul. There's a tradition of asceticism in the church that Mother Teresa practiced, that Pope John Paul practiced, that many others practiced. It's not about self-harm. It's something people today may not understand. It's about following the Lord, who suffered, who was crucified, who was whipped. It serves as a little reminder. It must be good for our body. Our body is a part of our being. Asceticism is part of Christian life. How people follow that is up to them. A reminder of Christ's sufferings as an exercise of faith? Critics are skeptical. There are extremely violent fantasies behind it, and it's extremely harmful physically, although that's always disputed. The idea that keeping this evil body in check and inflicting harm is a form of following Christ who bore the cross and was whipped, that's very difficult for me to understand spiritually. There's a very long tradition of misogyny and physical harm throughout the history of Catholicism and Christianity, but specifically hostility towards women. But in Opus Dei, a lot of Catholic teachings, what all Catholics are supposed to believe, is taken to the extreme. How are conservative groups like Opus Dei perceived within the Catholic Church? An interview request with Cardinal Bolke was rejected. Two men from Volke's inner circle are closely linked to Opus Dei. Markus Hoffmann, his former vicar general and right-hand man, is a member of the Priestly Society of the Holy Cross, an organization inextricably tied to Opus Dei. The suspended auxiliary bishop Dominicus Schwadelab is also linked to the group. Whether or not Opus Dei is trying to influence Volke is disputed. The Archdiocese rejects the idea. Volki insists he is not a member of Opus Dei and is not closer to this group than any other. Opus Dei has been entrenched in the Archdiocese of Cologne for a very long time. It didn't begin under Cardinal Velki, nor under Velki's predecessor, Meissner, but Meissner was the one who strengthened and supported the group. There are several very powerful, high-ranking and influential people in the clergy in the Archdiocese of Cologne who are supporters, members and sympathizers of Opus Dei and Velki is most certainly under their influence. 
The main idea here is, you can't be the Archbishop of Cologne and have Opus Dei against you. That's just not possible. It's too influential in Cologne, too significant, too ingrained. Opus Dei's importance in the Archdiocese of Cologne is especially evident in the Church of St. Pantaleon. In 1987, it was entrusted to the priests of Opus Dei, giving Opus Dei its own church in Cologne. Dear sisters, dear brothers, today we remember the Blessed Bishop Alvaro. Cardinal Volke preached here, as did his predecessors, Hofner and Meisner. Transferring the parish to Opus Dei sparked outrage at the time. Many in the parish, maybe even the majority, were against it. Members of the parish council resigned. Some were transferred to other parishes. Meanwhile, Opus Dei members came here and expanded the parish. Theologian Peter Hertel is an expert on Opus Dei. This church was singled out during Pope Benedict XVI's visit in 2005 as an Opus Dei parish. At the time, it was the only church in Cologne chosen by the Pope for a meeting. It's clearly an important church and central to Opus Dei in Germany. Opus Dei can be found in many powerful institutions. For example, in the European Central Bank. Opus Dei member Luis de Quindos is vice president. At the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg, Spanish judge Maria Eluzague is reportedly linked to Opus Dei too. From the perspective of Opus Dei, this is of course intentional. It's precisely about influencing politics, the economy, culture, the judiciary, the whole academic field, universities. In other words, positioning yourself close to the elite or becoming part of the elite yourself. The Vatican in Rome has been the center of Christianity for 2,000 years, and Opus Dei founder José María Escrivá moved to Rome in 1946 to cement his position. He was also subsequently laying the groundwork for Opus Dei to become an elite force within the Vatican. Before John Paul II became Pope, when he was still a cardinal in Poland, he had great admiration for Escrivá and Opus Dei. Escrivá died in 1975 and did not live to see the election of John Paul II to the papacy. But the Polish Pope elevated Opus Dei to the status of a personal prelature seven years later, unique in the Church's history. It became in direct subordination to the Pope. In 2002, John Paul II canonized Escrivá as a saint, less than 30 years after the founder's death. Another unusual move in the history of the Catholic Church. 
When Josef Ratzinger was elected as John Paul II's successor in 2005, Opus Dei reportedly welcomed the news. Opus Dei had sich schon im Vorfeld Opus Dei was very engaged leading up to the election of Pope Benedict, of Josef Ratzinger. If you want to support me and find out what makes me tick, please check out my autobiography, The Edict of Marlon, The Cult of the Individual by Marlon Heavenly Seventh. Everywhere books are available. It could be some boring days, so we got to learn some days. Sometimes we got to uh, soak up the information when uh, these groups pop up again and we hear stories. At least we have a foundation of the organizations. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The first day of the conclave, an Opus Dei member told me, it will be a very short conclave and Ratzinger will be elected. And that's precisely what happened. Pope Benedict also supported Opus Dei. He appointed priests from the group as bishops in the Vatican. He remains linked to the group by their vision of strength. I'll tell you one thing, they showing the popes and shit. I'll tell you one thing, man. I don't really have a dog in this race, man. But I don't give a fuck, man. Them popes be looking creepy as shit. And and it's almost unavoidable. They look they look to me personally, they look downright scary. I mean down like that like like overboard. Like I'm trying to not suppress my hate. But like as a man, I mean, they look, they look like first is uh, until I got older to hold my tongue, they would always scare. They they would scare. When I say if you put me as a kid and look at that dude, I'm scared. If you put me as an adult, I'm biting my tongue of the thing that's popping in my head, which is which is scary. Thanks. And Pope Francis? Scary enough for me to blindly say, I kind of don't want to meet the Pope. I'm good, man. Go back in that room, uh, Pope, Pope, uh, John, John Jr. want to talk to you. You know, uh, I, I'm good. I'm just going to look at these paintings a little bit more. Uh, I think I'm good. He's a Jesuit and not considered a close ally to Opus Day, But he allows the personal prelature its freedoms and has appointed more members as auxiliary bishops. Escrivá's legacy lives on almost 50 years after his death. Presumably, the pious Spaniard would have been awed to see what became of his original vision, especially in his homeland. We visited the campus of the Opus Dei-owned University of Navarra in Pamplona. Manuel Mirá is an architect and former Pamplona city councillor. He studied at the university and knows its history well. 
The entire campus takes up 1.2 million square meters, 120 hectares. That's about 200 soccer pitches. The area was previously used as a public park. The city of Pamplona gifted it to Opus Dei. A very generous gift indeed. Manuel Mira firmly believes tuition should be free, but that's not the case. Tuition costs up to 18,000 euros a year, well above the Spanish average. They are looking for people who will ascend to the... Damn, did the city gave them a, a million square acres? ...highest echelons of society, who will earn an academic title or hold a significant political office or become a bishop or even the pope. Opus Dei maintains a close-knit network to steer members into powerful positions. Besides the university in Pamplona, there's the Pontifical University of Santa Croce in Rome, hospitals in Pamplona and Madrid, business schools in Spain, the United States, Brazil and Germany several hundred schools and kindergartens, as well as numerous foundations. The investments seem to be paying off. The Spanish judiciary is still said to be influenced by Opus Dei. Former judge Santiago Vidal made serious accusations. The newspaper El Publico quoted him as saying, one-third of all Spanish judges and prosecutors are linked to Opus Dei. Opus Dei also appears to draw significant financial support from Spain's educational system. According to El País, a leading Spanish newspaper in 2020, investment in state-supported private schools the majority of which are religious, increased by 7%, while investment in the public school system was cut by 5%. Opus Dei's network of private schools also includes the IESE Business School in Barcelona. The Financial Times has ranked the school's MBA program among the best globally. An IESE campus was opened in Munich in 2015. Students don't have to be Catholic to study there, but they do have to be able to pay the hefty tuition, more than 70,000 euros for the two-year program. We wanted to ask the head of the business school in Munich whether graduates are expected to do favors for Opus Dei later in their careers, but our interview request was denied. We were told our questions made little sense. Back to Spain, in the southeastern part of the country, to Murcia. We meet a woman who tells us a shocking story about the way her father's death unfolded. My father was an Opus Dei member, as was my late mother, and my brother Fernando is an Opus Dei priest. One day, my brother told my father, you will die in four days. My father was really shocked. He told everyone. <coughs> he did have lung cancer, but it wasn't in the final stages. 
His doctors had told him that he had several more months to live, and he was active, meeting friends for coffee. But he died exactly four days later, under very strange circumstances. According to Josefina Hurtado, a doctor from Opus Day was in and out of her father's apartment. He sounded sedated on the phone and eventually stopped picking up. Josefina was working as a doctor in England at the time. Her father died on May the 17th, 2015, before she could return to Spain. Ascension Day and the anniversary of the beatification of Opus Day founder Escrivá. What a coincidence! Then, at his funeral, other Opus Day members said it was such a blessing from heaven that Saint Jose Maria Escrivá was his mediator to God. People even called to congratulate me. It was truly absurd, but it opened my eyes. She grew suspicious her priest brother played a role in her father's death. She reported him and possible accomplices. The toxicology report revealed her father was administered sedatives. His heart medication was stopped, and he wasn't drinking enough fluids. Was his death really planned? We obtained a document from Opus Dei founder Escrivá that was leaked to the court. It stated, in part, "When your hour comes, a priest will take care of you. You should confess everything to him, so he can prepare you for God's embrace. Then, a doctor will then go and get an injection." Is Obazay playing God? A grave accusation, which a spokesman denies. Some things are so ludicrous they don't even warrant a response. I've never seen nor heard of such a document. Nobody can know anything about it because it doesn't exist. The real question here is, who made it up? It's unfortunate that a family matter like this ends up in court. Or is picked up by the press, but that's how it is in life. Sometimes, there's nothing you can do. But this document does indeed exist. The text appeared in the 1989 book Meditations, Part Four, on page 695, written by Opus Dei founder Escrivá. The book is available to members in all Opus Dei centers in Spain. Court records show the death of Josefina Hurtado's father was investigated as a murder. There were also suspicions of falsifying a will to benefit Opus Dei, but the leads were inconclusive. Opus Dei destroyed our lives. We used to be a close-knit family. But after my parents joined Opus Day, everything fell apart. Towards the end of his life, my father said to me, "Your mother and I were deceived. They lied to us and deprived us of our wealth. They promised us heaven, but we ended up in hell." Josefina Otado died in 2020. Her family chose not to pursue the case any further. Investigators found no clear evidence of foul play.
Opus Dei founder Escrivá liked to say how difficult it is to get into the work of God and how easy it is to leave it again. But former members tell a very different story. I only became aware of how brutal it was when I was in this situation and thought to myself, oh God, you don't even have slippers, you don't even have an alarm clock. My father fought on my behalf and turned up the pressure. They only reacted when he said, we're going to the press now, and what you did to my daughter will be a headline in tomorrow's newspaper. That's when they reacted. I got a small payout, which I used to pay my first month's rent and deposit. That was it. Other former members share similar stories. If members of Opus Dei decide they want to leave, they're pressured to reconsider. Regional vicar Bokamp says that's not true. The decision to answer this calling is one of the freest decisions anyone can make. Life decisions are free by nature. People are also free to choose to go another way. In my 25 years as a regional vicar, I can't recall any particular case where people were put under any pressure. What Prelat Bokamp says about the openness of Opus Dei is of course problematic. Those on the inside confirm what he says, while those who leave tell a completely different story. What's true? Are they then traitors? Are they liars? Someone who exercises power cannot understand that others perceive it as pressure. It's really a question of who holds the power. Am I the one in charge? I think that's the central question in Opus Dei. It appears it's a matter of perspective. Those who have found a personal calling in the work of God cannot understand the accusations. But disillusioned former members bitterly criticize the group. In a secular society, not everyone understands the appeal of Opus Dei. While the German diocese admit to losing believers in droves, Opus Dei says it easily finds new recruits. Those who now leave the church are often those who believed that the church is changing. Anyone who is searching for order, hierarchy, and authority in the church isn't moving away. They're saying, now, finally, these liberals who weren't true believers are finally gone. Now it will be much better for us here, and our influence will be much greater. When all the lukewarm believers, the gray sheep, leave, it's the purest that are left behind. And in this pure flock, Opus Dei, as well as other very authoritarian spiritual communities, will be more dominant. The Catholic Church is once again at a crossroads. Should it open itself to the world or barricade itself? Pope Francis seems unwilling or unable to choose a clear direction. For Opus Dei, that question is at the very crux of its future.
Today, Opus Dei doesn't have the same powerful role it had in the 70s or 80s. But Opus Dei wants to play a role in the next conclave, so there won't be a pope as progressive as Pope Francis. I don't think Opus Dei has to fear losing its influence in the Vatican. Pope Francis is certainly no friend of Opus Dei, and Opus Dei definitely does not have a figurehead sitting on the papal throne. But in other matters, family, women, or in relation to gender, Pope Francis is also somewhat conservative and certainly not at the forefront of the reform movement. Opus Dei has a lot of money. It has a lot of real estate and houses. It has companies which it indirectly controls. And in these ways, even if it's not pastoral care, it will maintain its presence and exert pressure. I think Opus Dei will hold its sway among the elites. And beyond that, we'll patiently wait until the time is ripe to step into the limelight again. Opus Dei is in no hurry. Eternity is on its side. Opus Dei remains a phenomenon shrouded in secrecy. It may not be a criminal organization or a holy mafia, but it can't claim to be open or transparent either. It revolves around faith, power, and money, and if former members are to be believed, manipulation and pressure too. It would seem cohesion and obedience outweigh the touted values of love and mercy. All right, we made it to the end of uh, the secret of Opus Day. Uh, I would say just a stream, they're, they're the stream organized. Uh, factor of the catholic church comes across as big business like all major religions is big business what else i would say and uh once again it proved the power of our cult are is in the power of the individual uh self-accountability and knowing self-empowerment is knowing especially with most of these groups are personal choice groups meaning they they inflict a lot of manipulation and a lot of power based upon faith but with the foundation of uh personal choices uh that is the most important uh part what you choose be careful uh thanks for supporting the marlon podcast network two new episodes every day please check out my merch store link in the information box my merch is my wardrobe yep i'm selling the shirts off my back the shoes off my feet the pants off my ass. Own a piece of my personal life. I love those who love me. Catchphrase. Like to be number two. Uh, Patrice Lamuma don't know what it's like to be number two. Kwame and Krumah don't know what it's like to be number two. Robert Sabukwe don't know what it's like to be number two. Uh, uh, Amical Cabral doesn't know what it's like to be number two. Deedon Kamathi doesn't know what it's like to be number two. El Haj Malik El Shabazz don't know what it's like to be number two. Jean Jacques Dessalines doesn't know what it's like to be number two. Hit the cash app. Dollar sign FDMG School.
my Denver. This is Ifatunde Avenue. This is Dr. Papa Boulevard, Frederick Douglass High School, Nat Turner Jean Jacques Dessaline Gymnasium, Marcus Garvey Elementary School, Patrice Lumumba Roberts Abukwe Presidential Headquarters. Be in the building. This is Dallas to Austin. Dallas to Austin, three hours and 10 minutes. If you leave right now, at 3.50 p.m. God says in, take it, mix it with faith. I sound like I'm getting a little pastoral right now. So Manda kishiti kolora bashata, manda kalaboho masiki lomoko da masa, kadita na namosoya lama kamba sotkoya. For I would say unto you this day, saith the Lord, that I am not a God that is afar off, but I am an ever-present help. Let me tell you something, brother. You watch it. A whole heap of the stuff. She was just on so many bottles. There was, I mean, her whole body was toxic, correct? Yes, yes. So it's not that they were even able to say to you, it looks like there was an excessive amount. They couldn't say that. No, they didn't. Because it was not a, was not a suicide fishy, you understand me? I'm looking at all the bottles, and I'm telling you, there must have been 15 to 17 bottles of medication I'm looking at at any one given point in time. Yeah. I don't understand how the woman didn't, didn't pass over and leave us earlier. You understand me? Yeah. Because she was also having a problem with the ulcer. Yeah. Okay? What I'm hearing is that it was not suicide. What I am hearing is that it was human error and that they did not monitor those medications. Wow. Okay? Is, is she around? You know what? I hear her. You have a picture of her. There are two pictures, actually. There is one that is kind of crinkled somewhere, and it looks like it's on top of a dresser. You see the little crinkled picture? You either fly, fly, or you fry, fry. Every try, try, you always lie, lie. Every female, every guy, guy. Don't try to escape and get high, high. Now I lay me down to sleep. What I did do not happen to me. It might seem like I'm rapping to beat. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, my apologies for heaven's sake. My inner space is out of space. Too bad it went down this way. Run DMC, then walk this way. Stare with the heaven on the hip hop beat. Staring at heaven even if I sleep. Wake up from death seven days a week. Consciousness is continuously. All I know is eternity. To be or not to be. The beat is feeling kind of deep to me. Is it you? It speak to me. Voices in my head play a symphony. Bach mixed with Tupac, Beethoven. I I stay smoking. I'm really trying quick, but I stay smoking. I really want to hit, but I stay hoping. They seem the same open. I really want to change. I hope you notice. Forgive me for my sins when I lose focus. Forgive you. I hope you're joking. Karma came back and stuck his nose in. What you chosen is the chosen. Don't ever lie, lie. Say goodbye, bye.